Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. For many years, female athletes were forced to follow training, injury guidelines, and nutrition plans based on research conducted on men. But is that starting to change? Well, Sam Moss is a senior lecturer in sport and exercise sciences at the University of Chester and a Gatorade Sports Science Institute nutrition consultant in women's professional football, or soccer as we call it here in the U.S. She joins us now to discuss what she's seeing among the athletes she works with. Hi, Sam, and welcome to the NutriCast. Hi, Danielle. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you for joining me. So for those who didn't attend the Sports and Active Nutrition Summit in Amsterdam a few weeks ago, you had a great presentation on the physiological and nutritional challenges that you see firsthand in your athletes. And uh, one of the main concerns you brought up is energy availability. Can you sort of tell me more about that? Yeah, of course. So energy availability is an issue that affects a high proportion of athletes across lots of different sports. It can occur in both males and females, but the majority of the research we have has been done in women. That's not often something we can say very much, but Mm -hmm. a a recent study in uh, US female athletes, for example, found that 47% were at risk of low energy availability states. Uh, So that was based on a thousand females from 40 something sports. So there's no doubt that it's a common problem. Um, And we can explain it quite simply as the energy remaining in the body after accounting for the energy used for exercise. So to break that down a bit, an athlete or an exerciser, they need to ingest enough energy, both to fuel their training and competition demands, and also to support some key body processes. So in other words, all of those things that keep our bodies ticking over and keep us healthy, those things that we don't really have to think about, So I'm talking about processes like maintaining bone turnover, which we know is essential for healthy bones as we age and minimizing risk of fractures, for example. Um, And for females, there are lots of processes, hormones working in tandem that enable us to maintain a normal menstrual cycle as well. So the upshot really is that if athletes aren't consuming enough calories, then it's likely they are putting their health at risk because the body simply starts to shut off some of those key processes. You know, there isn't enough energy to keep every process in the body ticking over while also remaining an intensive exercise programme. So collectively, at least in, in research terms, we have a fairly good understanding now about some of the negative effects that can occur as a result of under fueling or low energy availability. And these have been documented in uh, what we term the athlete triad models. So they discussed this link between disordered eating, poor bone health and menstrual cycle dysfunction. But then more recently, it's been suggested that low energy availability might manifest itself in the disruption of many more body processes. Um, So things that we might not have considered previously. So I'm talking about things like psychological health. Um, things like immune function, gastrointestinal distress, um, and all of these potential consequences are covered under um, what we now term RED-S, or the, the Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport Model. So hopefully that that answers, gives you a brief 
overview of what energy availability is at least and, and some of the consequences that we're dealing with here. So Sam, would you say that this is intentional underfueling? I think that in some cases it, it may be intentional, but often that is linked to elements of disordered eating or, or eating disorders. And these exist on what we might consider a, a sliding scale. And in those cases, that is when we would want to refer those athletes to uh, psychological support. But I think that from my experience, in the majority of cases, it's it's unintentional. Um, and I think that a lot of environments that I've worked in in the past probably haven't been set up properly. And by that, I mean, we need to make improvements in the environment and making foods more readily available. Um, so from my experience in, in professional football, this is something that that perhaps hasn't been addressed in the past. You know, females haven't had the support that they've needed. That's obviously changing now. And there is definitely more of um, a drive to do that with female athletes. But there's still a large number of, of female athletes that are probably left behind um, at the expense of of the male athletes in that organization. Mm -hmm. And how do you go about player education? That has to be a big part of it as well, right? Yeah, definitely. So for me, I think the, the key is to start having those conversations with athletes early, early on in their careers, making sure that there is enough time allocated to nutrition uh, and that's done on a consistent basis. So in my experience, some athletes, even at that professional level, they seem to struggle with the basics of nutrition. And much of that, I think, as we said, is through no fault of their own. They just haven't been given the information they need. They, they haven't had good access to sports nutritionists in the past. So this is certainly something that sporting organisations need to prioritise, in my opinion. Um, and then once we've got the athletes there, once they're ready to learn, say in a workshop or a one-on-one -on -one support session, then we need to teach them not just how to feel properly, but also why they need to feel properly. So... I think for the how, it's our job as nutritionists to make it as easy as possible. So it's about giving them the practical strategies that they um, know that we know are going to work for them. So, for example, if we've got an athlete and they are struggling to eat big meals after training, then what can we do to ensure that they are getting the fuel that they need? So might we need to turn to uh, more liquid based options, for example, something that's high in calories, but easy to eat. So maybe sweeter things. And then for the why, I think that it's about being clear on the impact that nutritional behaviours can have on performance and health. So emphasising perhaps what we've just been discussing about female athlete triad and red S. Um, and one point that's probably worth mentioning relative to educating athletes is the importance of framing that education from a performance perspective first. So however much we talk to athletes about their health, I think performance is their main priority. And that's something we need to recognize. So they tend to be looking forward to the next match or the next competition rather than what is gonna happen years down the line to their health. So perhaps initially demonstrating how poor nutrition or underfueling can impact performance metrics that might be the way or the, the gateway maybe to initiating uh, some sort of positive change. Um, 
and then maybe once we've got their attention having dedicated sessions on on what good menstrual health looks like is the next logical step to me and here in the UK at least there's definitely been a drive to make female athletes more aware that losing your menstrual cycle isn't normal so it might seem like the best thing in the world at first particularly if you've got mm-hmm. loads of you know negative symptoms around your period but it's essentially showing that your body's struggling and it likely doesn't have enough energy to keep that process going so for me that's one of the key messages to get across to females uh, particularly young athletes or maybe parents or coaches of young females so if your period stops if you're having long breaks between periods or you know less than nine periods a year then that's something to see your doctor about and obviously then if you're lucky to have access to a dietitian or a sports nutritionist including them in this discussion is important to get the support that's needed so that your long-term health or the long-term health of that athlete isn't being compromised. Sam, is that common? I mean, I've heard of that with, you know, traditionally thinner athletes such as gymnasts and ballet dancers, but is that common in football for women as well? To lose your period? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In my experience, there, there have been players. It's not as though it's, you know, every player in the team that is losing their period, but it, in most of the teams that I'm aware of, there has been uh, at least a couple of players that this has happened to. There was recently a, a paper published as well by Lloyd Parker, who works with um, Everton FC. Um, yeah. And he documented a case of this and really interesting read. Uh, so it talks through the process of this athlete or this particular player losing their period and what they tried to do to to help her regain that back. So maybe we can link link to that as well. It might be useful, or an interesting read for people. Yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd be interested to see what they did. I mean, is it as simple as just adding on more calories or is it a lot more to it? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, a bigger process than that that involves uh, lots of the, the medical team staff. Uh, so, yeah, adding calories is one element to it. But then I think continuous monitoring as well uh, and and what the, the composition of those meals looks like all are really important points. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you spoke about in Amsterdam that I thought was really interesting is carb phobia. That is still very much alive right now, right? Yeah. So unfortunately, I, I think that there's lots of influencing factors that are causing this phobia yeah, of carbohydrates. So I guess to give you a bit of context, for a long time, studies have been finding that female athletes in general struggle to meet the carbohydrate guidelines that are set out for them. Um, you know, in comparison to male athletes. So even back in 2001, um, Louise Burke, uh, you know, a prominent researcher in, um, and practitioner in Australia, she was reporting low intakes based on a review of all the studies in the area at the time. So we've known this for 20 years and it doesn't seem to have changed very much. That was particularly in athletes doing endurance sports and aesthetic sports, as, as you previously alluded to there. So probably should point out also that those intakes were still considered low even when we consider that there's a 10 to 20 percent under reporting that we tend to observe when we ask people to do food diaries mm-hmm. um so those these low intakes of carbohydrate as as you've suggested are also something that i've discussed previously and something that seems to be prevalent in women's soccer still um 
Some of this has led to questions why that's the case. You know, why are these players struggling with, with carbohydrate in particular? So when we look at fat and protein, that seems to be completely fine. That is in line with recommendations. Um, so it has been investigated, some of the potential reasons um, in football in particular. So this year, uh, PhD student Sam McAfee has published some work. So he works um, as a nutritionist as the in the England women's setup. Uh, the soccer setup, and one of the key findings from from his study basically did interviews with players, uh, the support staff, and the parents of some of the younger players as well. He found that there was this definite fear of carbohydrates, misconceptions around carbohydrate messaging. So, you know, still this belief that carbohydrates makes you fat, which I still can't believe we are having to to wrestle with. Um, mm -hmm. But then at the same time, and I've said that, but it's, it is also not that surprising because we're still getting loads of mixed messages about nutrition um, here in the UK, at least. And no doubt it's probably very similar in the US. Um, oh, yeah. It's obviously becoming much more difficult to manage where athletes are getting their information from as well. So I, I don't know exactly how we go about managing it. It's a really to complex topic but I suppose we can start with properly educating athletes from a young age and um, you know telling them what is a good source telling them what is what is the correct fueling to to do and you know how that is going to translate to better health outcomes better performance outcomes and making that a consistent message I think as as they go from the grassroots level all the way up to professional level um, I don't think it's something we can just do once uh, because there's just too many influences. Yeah, I think that messaging angle is a very good point to bring up. You mentioned some deficiencies in carbs and things like that, but what about vitamins? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are some common deficiencies. Obviously, every athlete is going to be different, but there do tend to be some common micronutrient deficiencies prevalent in female athletes. Uh, so these are calcium, vitamin D, and also iron. So each of these micronutrients, they contribute to a number of really important body processes that can impact health and impact exercise. So if we find out we have a deficiency in an athlete, it's really important that we address it. We don't just, just leave it. So for vitamin D in particular, uh, we know that studies have shown between um, about 30 to 40 percent of female athletes are suboptimal. Um, so by that, I mean that they're either deficient or insufficient. Um, and it's it's interesting that even in sunny places, studies are still finding suboptimal vitamin D levels because people are spending more and more time indoors. Um, and that's probably something to consider as well. If much of your training time is spent indoors, uh, so you might be at a higher risk. Um, so Interesting. If, I was gonna I was gonna ask about that because I'm I'm picturing you know everybody playing outside, and I'm wondering why would they be deficient or inefficient in um, vitamin D? But uh, I didn't think about the training. A lot of the training takes place indoors. Yeah, for sure. And also, I guess people wear sunscreen as well, which can reduce vitamin D synthesis. Um, and then some people don't always, uh, sorry, some people always tend to cover up while they're training as well. So that reduces exposure to sunlight. 
So there's, there's lots of competing factors that might make people at higher risk, even though they think, oh, I'm, I'm going out and I'm running or I'm doing all of my training outside. So I think that, you know, regardless of whether you think you are getting sufficient vitamin D, it's probably a good idea to get tested. Uh, so you can do that really easily uh, via GP or there's some pretty decent home testing kits available as well. Um, so, so that's probably the first the first port of call. And then it's suggested that um, you take also vitamin D in the winter months as well. So in the US, I'm pretty sure the suggested amount is at least 600 IU international units per day. But then there's a, a really good argument for higher doses. So somewhere upwards of 1,500 to 2,000 IU a day. Um, and that comes from the Endocrine Society. Um, so that's generally considered a better recommendation and the, the lower amount probably isn't enough. And then for calcium, so the, recommend, uh, the recommendation here is between 1,000 and 1,500 milligrams per day. So getting that amount from your diet. Unfortunately, there's loads of really great sources of calcium. Um, especially if you like dairy, so milk, yogurt, cheese, uh, fish. But we do also know that many athletes are now choosing dietary alternatives, so things like soya, almond milk, um, and some of those are fortified with calcium, but some still aren't. So that might be a barrier uh, for some people. Uh, so it might be that they have to think a little bit more deeply about how they're going to get their calcium working with a, a, a dietitian, for example, or it might be that they simply need to take a supplement. And then for iron, uh, so this is suboptimal in between 15 to 35% of female athletes. Although there are um, certain cohort studies that show a much greater prevalence of iron deficiency. So for example, there's some studies in dancers that show pretty much every single one of those dancers is iron deficient. So iron is a bit more complex, I would say, in that we need a blood test to be completed and then interpreted by a trained medical professional, and then they will provide a specific treatment plan for that individual. Um, and that might range from increasing intake of certain foods on the lower end of that continuum to supplements somewhere in the middle. And then, you know, in the worst case scenarios, maybe it might require an intravenous injection. But the key thing here is not to blindly take iron supplements um, and always go to your GP doctor first. OK, good to know. And you kind of alluded to it earlier, but, um, you know, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka and others have helped bring awareness to mental health. Is that something that you work on with your athletes as well? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think that an athlete's mental health is always a priority. Maybe in years gone by, we viewed mental health and physical health um, for athletes as being separate entities and probably focused on physical health at the expense of mental health. Uh, but to my view, if an athlete is struggling mentally, then they aren't going to be able to make good decisions about their preparation. And that includes their food choices as well. Um, and yeah, 
of course, mental health can be, but not always, but as we alluded to earlier, it, it can be closely tied with eating behaviours. And we know that from decades of research on the female athlete triad, um, that which we've mentioned links disordered eating to, to poor bone health and, and menstrual function, that that, that, can, uh, that can cause these, these detrimental consequences. So to go back to direct, directly answering your question, in, in the studies that we have done on energy availability, um, disordered eating and eating disorders is something we have attempted to assess. Um, we tried to do this using questionnaires um, and there are psychometric questionnaires available to do that in athletes. But to assess this thoroughly, really you need a trained psychologist or a psychiatrist to, to complete interviews as well with players because otherwise you're at risk of missing an athlete who might be experiencing a mental health issue, but it, it doesn't necessarily come up on, on questionnaires, which can, you know, arguably can be you know, manipulated more easily than an interview. Um, so some of the teams I've worked with do have a psychologist as part of their sports science and medicine teams. And I think that including them in any conversations on um, about any education we do relative to energy availability and fueling is going to be uh, really worthwhile. Obviously, not everybody has access to a psychologist, though, so that might also be, be a barrier. That is great to hear. I did not know that teams had, you know, psychologists. Yeah, I think it's very underrepresented on the whole or previously have been underrepresented. But I think that there's definitely a drive now because people are appreciating how important psychology is. Uh, so, you know, not only sports psychology in terms of preparation for performance, but also to help athletes deal with other issues. So, for example, when they get injured, that used to be treated as just a, a physical issue. But we know now that the psychological element of returning back to play is probably the thing that is going to hold athletes back more so or just as much as the, the physical elements. Uh, so there's much more, I think, scope to include psychologists and, and hopefully more teams will recognise the importance of them and start to and start to integrate them. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's journey is so personal. Talk to me a little bit about how much personalized nutrition plays a role in your practice. Okay, so yeah, most of my background is is working with with team sport athletes, which straight away makes personalization a little bit more difficult, simply due to the sheer number of athletes that need support. But this is definitely the way that nutrition is going now. It's definitely something we need to find the time to do especially if we're looking to alter nutrition in concert with the menstrual cycle, then individualization is, is definitely needed. And one of the key reasons why that's, that's the case is because the menstrual cycle and its associated effects might be completely different between two athletes. So applying the exact same strategies is probably going to be a waste of time. And I find that when we're working with athletes, the buy-in is so important to achieving any kind of impact. So we need to be spending time understanding individuals, understanding what their unique challenges are, and then putting into practice the strategies that we've selected um, that might be most likely to, to benefit their needs. And what are some of the personalized tools that you think are cool or that maybe you're even using? So 
for me personally, a bit boring in terms of using tools. <laughs> so I think I've actually gone full circle in that I probably used to monitor everything. And then over time, I've probably realised that I, I'm, I'm not really getting any better. I'm not improving or going downhill. So I've stopped using <laughs> as, as many tools. Um, well, at least um, you're being honest with yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From, I guess, a menstrual cycle monitoring perspective, then the, one of the key things that I use is just um, a, a simple app. So there's lots of different apps available that allow us to track our menstrual cycle. So that's a, a good place to start for, for many athletes or women who want to better understand, you know, at the length of the cycle so they can be potentially more prepared in the in the future so if they've got a, a tournament coming up this can also be linked with experiencing different symptoms as well so we can be better prepared and maybe put something into place um, as uh, as a method to to try to um, alleviate some of those symptoms one of the exciting areas that we're working in at the moment um, with manchester city um, is that we are we're trying to understand the effect of the menstrual cycle on player health and performance. Uh, so the project that we are doing is supported by the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, the University of Chester, and we've also uh, back to the tech question is uh, we've teamed up with a company called Mink Diagnostics. So we're finding this exciting because they are able to profile the hormones associated with different phases of the menstrual cycle simply by doing repeated saliva samples. So basically we are asking players to spit into a tube and, and from that we are able to monitor their levels of sex steroid hormones that are associated with the menstrual cycle. Um, so we hope that that will lead to, to greater personalization for players. Most importantly to me though, it shows that we are having this investment from you know, a top level club, demonstrates how committed they are to understanding and improving the health of female players. So this particular tool, if we can be the leaders on that and, and demonstrate uh, value in it, then I think that that can hopefully encourage other sporting organizations to also invest in, in their female athletes and do something similar. That is so cool. And that's so encouraging to hear because there's such a barrier, I think, when it comes to personalized nutrition, sometimes, you know, stool samples, blood. I mean, people don't want to do that. But if it's as simple as saliva, that makes it so much easier and convenient. Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of the key barriers to menstrual cycle tracking, to the hormone tracking in particular that you had to do a blood test really to be able to get accurate data. So this is a really simple, easy way for athletes that takes you know less than two minutes of their time every day. And once we have a good idea of a few menstrual cycles, hopefully then we can, we can utilize that information to personalize their nutrition. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Uh, what's next for you? Do you have any other updates or research that you wanna talk about? At the moment, the focus is on the, the study that we are we're working on that I've just described to you with Manchester City and, and part of my role is also as a practitioner there. So I really want to now focus on, you know, we've done we've done some of the research in terms of better understanding the environment 
and now the key is to implement some of this key education and key practical nutrition strategies to to assist them i think that from the data we get from from the study i've just i've just spoken about led by rosie anderson we can be in a in a better position to do that to personalize and hopefully that will translate to better health of the athletes and also better performance too yeah definitely so much opportunity out there dr sam moss thank you so much for joining me here on the nutricast oh thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure to be here if you like what you just heard, you could subscribe to the NutraCast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head to NutraIngredients-USA.com for even more Nutra-related content. Thank you for listening. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutraCast next week.